The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, an existential despair, yet some hope. Thursday the 19th of August 2021, the late winter series continues as planet Earth burns. Cue scary music, read script. Uh, the new UN climate report uh, is calling it a code red for humanity. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says global heating is choking our planet and putting billions of people at risk. With further warming in the coming years, we expect to see new extremes that are unprecedented in magnitude, frequency, timing or in regions that have never encountered those types of extremes. There isn't much time left to cut our reliance on fossil fuels and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. You've been telling us for over three decades of the dangers of allowing the planet to warm. The world listened, but didn't hear. We are rapidly advancing towards a 1.5 degree increase in... Te- well, hang on, I can't read all this before the next bit comes in. Uh, this script is essentially from a UN video. There's a, a link on the podcast webpage. It is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean, and the land. We confirm that human-caused emissions of greenhouse gases are the main driver of global warming. Uh, yeah, human impact, uh, worsening impacts, rapid changes already taken place, uh, some of them irreversible, urgent action must be taken... Uh, images of people with floods and fires, doom, gloom, bloody blah. Climate change is here now, but we are also here now. And if we don't act, who will? I mean, who will? Katan Joshi is a communications consultant working with NGOs in Europe, and he's also a freelance writer covering climate and energy. We know how to make electricity without burning a lump of coal. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. This is the 9pm, the Earth is on fire and we're all going to die with Kitan Joshi. Although, ideally, we won't. Kitan Joshi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's good to be here. Now, we uh, have... This rather alarming report, the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, sixth assessment report. Now, I think it's fair to say that the IPCC's warnings over the years have been consistently dire. So what's what's different this time? <laughs> they're, they're a bit more dire than they were uh, the previous, you know, 5,000 Five times. times yes. um, <laughs> Uh, of course, uh, two two key things have changed. First of all, seven years have passed since the last um, of these reviews, which means in that time we have humanity has emitted um, more more emissions. Uh, you know, there was uh, back then there were a bunch of different possibilities that they saw. Um, we're sort of tracking in their middle possibility, like it's not the worst case scenario that they envisage, but it's not the best case either, uh, and. The other thing that has changed is that the technology used to actually do this science has improved significantly and the knowledge of the scientists has also improved significantly as happens with science. You know, over time, um, knowledge progresses and we get more and more uh, capability of understanding how this problem works. 
Well, indeed, I was thinking um, with computer modelling, I mean, the computers are just getting faster. And I remember many years ago, a friend of mine who worked in organic chemistry said, if you got a three-year research grant, what you did is spent two years just putting the money in the bank so that for the last year you could buy a faster computer and you get the same amount of modelling done. Yeah, yeah. One thing that hit me um, on the 7am podcast uh, uh, the other day, uh, Australian scientist uh, Joelle uh, Gerges, she's uh, one of the lead authors of this report, she said this, After evaluating evidence from all over the world, we were able to conclude that human-caused climate change is now driving changes in the global water cycle since at least the 1950s. And this is quite a strong result because for uh, really uh, the first time, we're also able to say, well, climate change is also influencing the the water cycle. And we found that um, a warmer climate intensifies both very wet and very dry weather conditions. So it influences the impacts of things like extreme flooding and drought across many parts of the world. Now, Joelle there, she emphasises the water cycle because that was her bit, and that's fine. But she did point out we've seen the floods across northern Europe, just like in recent days, at the same time as massive heat and drought in the US or within you know a few days of each other, floods in, in China. She does say it's all there in front of us, but are, are we getting it. I mean, you've been following this for for yonks. Are you seeing any change in our understanding? Our being us, not the scientists. That's actually a surprisingly hard question uh, because we've actually seen not just climate disasters before, of course, those have been happening for some time, but climate disasters in wealthy countries that are more responsible for the fossil fuel problem than um, more exposed and more vulnerable countries in the in the global south, Australia, of course, is was actually the sort of first, most significantly and widely recognised example of this, with the Black Summer bushfires in 2019-20, where uh, climate impacts really uh, made themselves known to countries that had previously thought themselves a little bit sort of uh we're not first in line because we're not a we're not you know bangladesh or something um Mm. we sort of have like more ways to protect ourselves and of course climate change is a problem that does not really obey um the rules of like wealth um it's sort of exposed to everybody but the problem with that of course is that when those impacts came to australia it did not precipitate a widespread shift in the understanding of the problem um, at any level. So it, so it didn't change politics. Uh, it didn't really change business. Um, it sort of changed people to some degree, but it's hard to tell because COVID-19 hit literally a week after mm. um, the mm. sort of uh, quasi closure of that bushfire of the bushfire crisis. Uh, so really uh, the question of whether or not disaster, the manifestation of the consequences changes anything it's really unclear, and I think um, my, my personal suspicion is a huge part of the reason why there isn't any clear or detectable impact on people is is, is mostly to do with um, media coverage, actually, because uh, what we've seen more and more is that media outlets are happy to sort of include at the end of an article when they're covering a, a disaster of that kind, they'll include something like, climate scientists predict that we'll see more and more of these disasters as the climate changes. Mm. But they mm. won't say something like, 
the burning of fossil fuels or the delay of climate action from, from, you know, like the behavior of these particular companies is the root cause of the intensification of these disasters. Like they would never say something like that at the end of an article. Um, And so people, of course, naturally do not make the connection um, between the decisions made uh, or the actions taken to cause the sort of 2.4 gigatons, um, sorry, 2.4 uh, well, teratons, I guess, 2,400 gigatons. <laughs> oh, whatever. We don't know what these numbers are. I mean, we, you know, what do is Do people that? say that? <laughs> how, how many, do, yeah, do people say that? How many, um, you know, MCGs is that? How many Sydney harbours of carbon? I don't I know. Actually, I actually really like the way the IPCC report expresses this because it's just a mass. It's just an amount of stuff that is in the atmosphere that mm. we can we can confidently say People chose to release this, and that's and there it is up in the sky right now, and it's causing these particular impacts. Um, and that's actually a big part of the report is is um, about that mass that has already happened, um, and and um, what it's doing. I'm intrigued though by you know at one level, as Doctor Jurgis says, that we're now seeing it in front of us. But when we saw like the heat dome over the United States. Recently, everyone in Australia is going. Oh, yeah, we get that. You know, it's it's almost. <laughs> yeah, we get that. Yeah. And in Australia, we mm. had. Yeah, we've had bushfires before, and yeah. and those of us who bother looking up the data go. Yeah, but not so many, and not like this, as opposed to some old bloke down at the pub remembering this. Yeah. That's why I asked that question. Really, are we getting it? And and. Yeah. As you say, it's, you know, what, half of Bangladesh is only a couple of metres above sea level or what it is. They're screwed. But everyone in in the rich Western countries where it's mostly white people go, I I don't even know what Bangladesh is, you know, fuck them. Somebody actually said this in an interview. I mean, obviously, it was somebody who was um, directly impacted by the disasters, the flooding in Germany. Um, Of course, um, it's a bit, it's, it's sort of, uh, you have to be a bit careful when judging the things people say in the immediate aftermath of a, mm. of a disaster like that. They're really, you know, they're, they're traumatized and they're shaken. Mm. Um, but uh, somebody said in, in an interview, um, uh, they were like, uh, it was something along the lines of, this just doesn't happen here. It happens to poor countries. Uh, you know, oh. our streets don't turn into rivers filled with cars. Um, it just doesn't happen in Germany. Um, and so, uh, of course, you know, that's not uh, and how there's the two ways you can works. take that, right? <laughs> you can take it as, oh, what a heartless thing to say. But uh, on the other hand, is this the, like the club on the head that finally says, yeah, it's it's not just about the poor yeah, people who yeah. you normally don't see on TV news. Wealth, wealth is not going to protect um, the vast majority of people. Like there will be like, you know, 10 people who can afford to go to a bunker in New Zealand. Um, mm. And the rest of us, we have to kind of, you know, band together and protect ourselves because, you know, uh, the, like it, it, there's really um, uh, there's no avoiding the impacts of this particular problem um, if they if they manifest in the in their worst way. So, um, uh, and actually, I, I have to say, um, I listened to that interview with um, with Joel on the Seven AM podcast, and it's fantastic. Mm. I highly recommend the whole thing if anyone uh, wants to follow it up and have a listen because. Um, She's so great. I really, I really, really like um, all of her work. 
Well, that says me saying it, and yes, there are, of course. There's always <laughs> links to everything we mention on the thing. But, yeah, it's a seriously good podcast. We'll hear another grab from her a bit later. But, yeah, it's like it's like 15 minutes, people. Go and listen to the damn thing. She, she says it very well, and that means I'm going to skip over the next two questions about what does failing to reach the Paris Agreement targets of 1.5 degrees C of warming mean? Where does that leave us? What does sea level rise mean? She says all that. Yeah, Do you want to add to that or go just listen to Joelle? No, no, not at all. Listen to her because she's really the expert and, she's, and she expresses it perfectly. Yeah, Which then leads us to opinion here in Australia. The essential polling, this was an essential polling week, every fortnight and there were a couple of questions about Australians reactions to the IPCC report when you look at the total proportion concerned which is either concerned or moderately concerned or very concerned or whatever to these things it's quite high concerned about extreme free extremes and frequent bushfires with longer fire seasons 81%. Concerned about increased frequency of droughts in dry areas, 79 Increased sea temperature rising and ecosystems in, in the marine environment, 76%. 75 blah, blah, blah. So it goes through that. The majority of Australians, a significant majority of Australians, are concerned. And then you look at the support levels for certain measures, provide greater funding for rooftop solar, brackets as if it's our fault, 70%, um, et cetera, et cetera. Net zero carbon emissions target for 2030. Here's the one. 61% of Australians support net zero for 2030, only 13% opposed, uh, and the neither support or oppose still at 25%. So there's still a lot of uncertainty, but there's still a lot of support. I won't go through all the numbers. Again, it's all mm. there. But there's even things like phase out new petrol cars by 2030. There's a 47% support for that, like today. Yeah. Uh, the the level of support for these for these policies that, you know, sort of the wonks and the um, policymakers would consider to be too, dis- too disruptive or too ambitious uh, is huge, right? It's it's really just it shows that um, it shows two things really importantly. If you wanted to set an ambitious agenda and come up with those policies, then there's like a good base for you to work off. Mm. But those undecideds and those uncertains and the people who are like, I don't understand what a net zero target is, sort of people, um, they're also there in a relatively decent number. And if you were to convince them that a net zero target will um, take your meat away and destroy your um, lifestyle, uh, then you could probably, you know, and that's this is something we're seeing in the UK. Um, being based in, in Oslo now, um, I sort of um, follow debates across a bunch of different time zones. So, like, mm. I follow the US debate, I follow the UK and Europe debate, and I follow the Australian debate. Um, and uh, in the UK, there's a sort of mirror campaign going on. To if you remember the 2019 election uh, in Australia, there was this you know sort of um, Labor's climate policies were attacked on the grounds that they weren't costed, um, mm. and that, that you know it was like, well, you, you're trying to implement this stuff and you don't know how much it costs. Exactly the same uh, campaign is being used against um, Boris Johnson's net zero um, by 2050 target except it has it, it it also has the same tone of like 
they're coming into your household and trying to take your stuff kind of thing. So it's like- What? Um, like yeah, what? Yeah, it's like- What, what are they so taking you, away? So, so um, if you remember the- um, with the Bill Shorten thing, it was always about EVs. Like, it's always like, you know, they're coming to take the tradies use away and um, they're going to force you to buy an EV. Yeah, they're stealing your weekend. Yeah, that exactly that. Somehow. They're, they're doing precisely the same thing, except it's like sort of more of a factional thing within the UK because, uh, you know, there's the more conservative and the slightly less, like, you mm. know, there's sort of two approaches to the thing. And then, um, uh, the you know, it's focusing a bit more on diet. Um, uh, so there's a lot more sort of meat focus kind of stuff. Um, okay. If you remember like the lamb roast, your lamb roast is going to get too expensive from like 2014, the carbon price stuff. Um, it's oh, like this that. This is the $100 sort of- lamb roast thing, which you have an entire section of your book about that. We'll come to that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, because it's so, it, it actually really, even though it's old, you know, that's from like six, seven years ago. It actually it's not that preempts. old in the grand scheme. No, it's not right. that old. No. <laughs> yeah. it, it very much preempts what, what is actually about to happen um, in many countries as they sort of start moving into the away from like the big power station side of the climate debate and into the, um, you know, cities and urban life, urban spaces and, and homes and lifestyle side of the climate debate. Um, so uh, the other the other side of it in the UK is actually around gas um, in homes. So like gas boilers. Um, and this climate denier group called the Global Warming Policy Foundation, they um, are trying to do this whole, you know, net zero is going to force you to force your grandmother to install a heat pump and she'll be too cold and she'll die from the cold and that sort of stuff. Um, you know, you, you, everybody kind, everybody's kind what? of familiar with what? the tactic, right? Which is like, yeah, yeah. no, it's ludicrous, but it... But it um, uh, for those people who are looking, who are looking at that poll, uh, who are responding to that poll and being like, I don't know what a net zero target is, just put me down as a. And they know. probably don't know what a heat pump is. Not no, understanding. Uh, like, it's, you know, it's just a heater, right? It's just I mean, we replace your grandmother's heater <laughs> with another kind of heater, and she'll I, I, be fine. I, I did not know what a heat pump was until, like, I started. You know, until I it's I started a reverse cycle air conditioner, looking. right? You know, it's yeah. just <laughs> an air conditioner. Yeah, and and it's um you know um the industries that build these technologies and deploy them actually don't do a particularly great job at um getting people to familiar with what the technology is and how it's actually probably cheaper in the long run and all that sort of stuff. So, um yeah, so much of this comes down to media, doesn't it? Yes, uh, this is a really really crucial point, and it's a it is quite an underconsidered one. Um, so some of the consulting work I'm doing is in my with my sort of communications consultant hat on at the moment is um, thinking about how media represent climate ambition. Uh, so uh, you know stuff like uh, how when a when a country says look at this climate target we've just released, um, how does that get reported? You know, like is it mm. sort of critical or is it um, credulous or like wh- who's reading it? Um, that sort of stuff. So. Um, Today, for instance, um, two of Australia's largest fossil fuel companies, BHP and Woodside, are merging into one. Um, oh, okay. I'd missed that one. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. Um, it's really, really huge. Um, and I, I actually missed it too. And I was like, oh, look, there it is. And, you know, just one. <laughs> um, obviously, Australia has other things on its mind at the moment. Um, <laughs> yeah, we will not go into that. Um, and... Uh, BHP, and of course, they, wanna, they want to reassure investors like, you know, I know it's Woodside's going to be owning a lot of fossil fuel projects now, but don't worry. 
Um, so they've got a little bit in there about um, here's our net zero target and here's our climate ambitions. So how does even this work with, with like you've got two really major players coming together? That makes them mm. an even more powerful um, lobbying group. Yeah, so so Woodside is is purchasing um, BHP's oil and gas assets, right? So BHP digs up um, coal, oil and gas. Um, I did some calculations last night. It's about seventy seven percent coal, and the rest is oil and gas. In terms of the emissions that is responsible for for selling, if you can imagine that, like when they sell like a a, a sort of canister of gas that's burnt, um, and you sort of attribute those emissions back to the company, um, they're selling the oil and gas bits of that. To, to, to Woodside. So Woodside will go from having, um, you know, like already quite a lot of oil and grass extraction projects to having even more. And so investors are looking at that being like, oh, that's a lot of uh, oil and gas projects you've got there, <laughs> like uh, even more than before. Uh, and so they've got this bit in their plan in their investor presentation about, um, uh, oh, look at our emission, look at our climate, climate targets. And I was just reading it and it's like, um, they only target the emissions from making the product, right? So, so from digging up oil and gas and transporting it. So that means things like instead of having diesel locomotives haul their trains up in Western Australia, they'll make them solar-powered electric trains, but they're still shipping out coal or whatever it might be. Here, here in Norway, the oil oil fields are being electrified, right? So they're building offshore wind wind ah. farms to uh, electrify those oil platforms, and it's a huge debate because people are like, "Well, you could use that electricity and export it to other parts of Europe uh, to shut down coal fired power stations instead." But uh, instead, you're just powering more oil and gas extraction um, from and the North Sea, presumably, it. and others. Yeah. Yeah, That's yeah. why companies focus on their own their own emissions, but they but they make a real point of ignoring the emissions from selling fossil fuels, which is of course the bulk of their sort of moral responsibility for their actions is by enabling the extraction of fossil fuels, flooding the market with these products, and then of course also trying to manufacture demand for them by saying things like we can't shut off, you know, coal plants or gas plants too quickly, otherwise there'll be blackouts and that sort of stuff. Or, or mm. like we can't transition to electric vehicles too quickly because otherwise, um, you know, the grid will get overloaded. All those sorts of those sorts of arguments. So, um, Woodside are doing the same thing. And we saw that garbage looking at South Australia when when a storm took out power lines and suddenly it's renewable energy's fault. Uh, when in fact South Australia is probably as of today exporting energy to the other states. Yeah, absolutely, and and. Um, uh, we're seeing that in other in other parts of the world too, Texas and California, similar similar stories. Well, let's plug the book properly before we we go on. Uh, by Katan Joshi, it's called Windfall: Unlocking a Fossil Free Future uh, by New South Books, which is uh, the University of New South Wales uh, Books. Windfall, you'll be able to find it. Katan Joshi, just look up the name, uh, and uh, there it is. Anyway, let's take a break uh, while we're doing some plugs and do the housekeeping. Uh, we've had some fantastic guests uh, so far in this The Late Winter Series 2021. Next week will be no exception. We're going to be talking about Antarctica and the Arctic and geopolitics of that 
maybe even some Russian foreign energy policy and strategy. Oh, our guest will be Dr. Liz Buchanan from uh, the Australian War College in Canberra, amongst other places. Uh, she particularly wants to talk about, well, Australia in the Antarctic. We're one of the biggest players, and yet have we got our heads around that at all? What does it all mean? That's next week. We're recording on Tuesday the 24th. So if you want to burn off uh, trigger words or a conversation topic uh, for that one, I'll need to know by, let's call it 3 p.m. on the Tuesday, 3 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. And then the following week... The last day of winter, the 31st of August, Tuesday night, there will be a live streamed episode. I'm not quite sure what else will be happening in it, but it will be live on that Tuesday night, although obviously you can still listen to it later. That will be fun too. This podcast is of course made possible by you, the generous listener. This episode, I want to say a big thank you to Julia Drake Brockman, who's a new Edict02 schooner-level subscriber. She will have three trigger words to use in the next year, uh, which I'm looking forward to. Thank you, Julia. And also thank you to Martin Gribben, who says, thank you for your service to the community and the world at large. Wow. I don't know that I want to take responsibility for the world at large, not just at the moment, but there you go. Thank you, Martin. Uh, you can have a trigger word as well. How's that to throw in? And, and of course, it is thank you to everyone who supported the 9pm Late Winter Series 2021 crowdfunding campaign that we ran during July. All your names I'll do again um, in that final episode, but you, you're all on the website. You know who you are. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you too would like to support the ongoing maintenance of this podcast and, and my habit of needing to eat every now and then, how outrageous, uh, go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip, the 9pmedict.com slash tip, and you can also click through uh, there and hear about how to subscribe for those extra benefits. And now back to Katan Joshi. In the Canberra Times this week, you wrote the sentence, Australia isn't going to act on climate until every tonne truly counts. What did you mean by that? It's something I've really noticed uh, on on a few different levels. So, um, uh, first of all, uh, very much when I wrote that, I had corporates and businesses and governments um, and policymakers in mind because what we see, and I did a, and I did a Twitter thread about this yesterday, is even when big reports like the IPCC thing come out, um, people are happy to acknowledge the big picture, right? They'll say, yes, climate change mm. is bad. Those those scenarios, mm. the IPCC, those potential futures that they put in their report, they're also very bad. We do not want those. But then they'll kind of walk away from that and walk back to their desk and say, okay, time to um, approve this new gas field. Um, because mm. they, in their mind, um, I, I, I think that they don't, see the micro components of the macro problem, right? So they sort of, um, if you look back at, I mentioned the sort of 2,490 or whatever it is, um, gigatons that have been added to the atmosphere over the past, um, since the year 1750, right? Every single one of those gigatons um, occurred for a reason, right? Um, a decent proportion of them occurred before we even knew that the greenhouse effect was really 
certainly doing the damage that it's doing, right? Like there was um, <laughs> well, about nineteen oh four or whenever it was. Well, well, sorry, the, we the just really had we just had science. the anniversary of that newspaper article. <laughs> yeah, this week, we did. Right? We did, but like the really hard science, you know, basically um, confirming it without doubt, you know, sort of late 80s, early 90s, right? You can split that out into before we knew and after we knew. Um, mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> after we knew, there's a really strong history about why we continued to emit despite knowing the damage that it does. Um, there's right. climate denial. Um, yeah. the, the the whole campaign to cast doubt on whether or not um, harm actually occurs uh, that resulted in you know what, like one or two decades of, c- of continuing growing emissions when that shouldn't have been growing. Um, more recently, if you sort of look back to the last five years to one decade, uh, a lot of it has actually been not denying the science, but actually denying the need to act urgently. So specifically saying, well every ton doesn't really count, right? Like this extra ton, we have no other option but to admit it because we just can't figure out anything else to do. And um, besides, and- <laughs> China is burning all this coal and there's this and cows yeah. are farting and yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. That. And so just to bring it back to a nice solid example, I always pick on AGL because they always ha- they're just so perfect like as an instance of a decision being made to treat emissions as if they're harmless. You remember Tony Abbott would say stuff like, oh, you know, carbon emissions are a harmless plant food. These companies sort of act like it, like they sort of behave as if they believe that. Um, and so like AGL uh, operates, you know, a sort of trio of like some of Australia's worst coal plants. And what we know now for sure, for absolutely sure, is that you don't need coal to run to make electricity. Like there's just, we know how to make electricity without burning a lump of coal. Uh, we know how to operate a grid securely and reliably uh, without burning a lump of coal, um, which means you actually can shut them down over the course of like three or four years. You know, you need you need that amount of time to ensure that the communities that rely on the operation of those power stations are protected financially and economically. But technologically, you can shut down coal extremely fast. Um, and so a company deciding not to do that um, they don't believe that the emissions are doing harm. This relates exactly to one of the sets of trigger words that uh, the listeners who support this podcast have bought uh, from Jot de Witt, uh, Johan de Witt. His three trigger words were maximum technical ramp up, which covers exactly this. How fast could we technically ramp mm. up to replace fossil fuels with renewables? Uh, just incredibly fast on, on, on power grids. I mean, uh, the, the narratives that are deployed around this are really, really, um, frustrating because they sort of don't, uh, like they don't include ambition. They don't include the need to act on a public health threat. Um, and so people in, in, um, not, not just in Australia, um, but in part, many other parts of the world, people sort of describe it as a trilemma. They're like, oh, well, we're worried about price, we're worried about reliability, and we're worried about emissions. But they mm-hmm. always drop the third one off and they and they sort of prioritize the first two um, as a way of making action to transition slower. So um, technologically, uh, we, we can, like, uh, it takes a long time to build a power line and it takes a long time to build... Mm-hmm. 
um, you know, larger types of renewable energy facilities, um, you know, like expanding hydro or geothermal, that sort of stuff. Wind and solar are relatively quicker, but all of those things actually have like community, social and political constraints um, that act as like, you know, sort of uh, you sort of have to go a bit slower to ensure that you don't run into a brick wall of like, you know, remember the community opposition to uh, wind farms in Australia. So um, I factor Joe that Joe Hockey into- finds them totally unacceptable, whereas when I'm getting the train down in Canberra, I look at it and go, gee, they're beautiful bits of technology, aren't they? Across the landscape. But you're right. Um, okay. That's constantly on my mind when I think about the technological feasibility of how fast you can change things. I always mm-hmm. kind of like throw that in there as well because it's an important thing to not uh, – an important thing to get right. Yeah. And the other question, which comes as a set of three trigger words, uh, and thank you, um, Yop DeVitt, for those. Uh, he's a long-time supporter of the pod. I need to kind of give him his due. And I've pronounced his name correctly for the first time this episode. <laughs> uh, Iris uh, throws in a couple of words. Next decade, realistically, what can we really do in the next 10 years to keep our current humble version of a way of living living into the future intact? Uh, two things are really, really important. The end of coal, uh, the end of coal mm-hmm. power um, uh, in uh, it, what, what the International Energy Agency describes as advanced economies, but they may just mean rich countries. Um, <laughs> like <laughs> coal, It's coal. one of those irregular nouns, <laughs> isn't it? Yes. It's why it's why I bang on about coal power all the time because it's really it's the biggest domino of everything that we need to do to resolve this climate problem. It is the biggest domino by far. Like it's just this big, huge chunk that is also the most feasible, um, and it's also doing the most damage in it as, as like a single unit. There was this amazing study um, about coal plants. Uh, as individual units, like how distributed are they? So like. Um, China has a lot of small coal plants, mm-hmm. um, and whereas Australia has only a few really big coal plants. Mm-hmm. So those countries where with like taller, bigger dominoes that you can kind of topple over in one push, um, that's actually where you need to be targeting because you get the most emissions reward. Um, of course, like you, you get sorry, you get the most emissions avoided reward. Um, and so, like a country like Australia is just so ripe for um, actually getting that first step towards net zero by 2050. It should be sooner, of course, but um, that that very first step, shutting down coal by 2030, that is so realistic. Um, it's actually really just a um, it's a problem of like momentum. It's a problem of like imagination. People just can't imagine shutting down coal in the space of eight years. Uh, and so, uh, I think that's actually quite realistic and i think that actually i'm pretty hopeful that there will be a time when we look back on the sort of prevailing attitude which is that no no no, we can't do that as like a bit silly and it's like oh we could do it you know it actually like no grid needed coal um we're all fine uh every everyone's getting power as they were before and we don't need coal and then the second thing is um decarbonizing transport quite quickly uh, so, I mean, I think people kind of know about this already a bit, but like, mm. you know, electric vehicles, um, using active transport, like walking and cycling and, and then expanding public transport options as well. Um, all three of those things deployed 
where they need to be deployed um, in a fair way. That's at, that's at, that's the second big domino, like the transport, um, the world's fleet of vehicles. It's going to be harder than the coal thing. Um, I would say probably significantly harder. Uh, but um, I, I think it's definitely realistic. Weirdly enough, the Australian public, according to the polls, support both of those things already. Now, we're running out of time, but I want to do two quick things. One is play you another grab from Joel Jurgis uh, from the 7am podcast, which you really have to go listen to. But here's, here's, here's another 19 seconds. Releasing our report against the backdrop of these ongoing natural disasters that are, that are happening all over the world right now, it makes me hope that people no longer need to use their imagination to, to picture what climate change looks like because it's here right now and it's part of the lived experience of every single person alive on the planet. Is she right? Are we going to pay attention to the fact that this is right in front of us? Joelle is really hopeful about this. She's very positive. She's very optimistic. Uh, I, I agree with her that what we're seeing will certainly have a really strong effect on on public perception and public support for climate action. We're already seeing it. Um, it's uh, it's something that is hard to quantify or trace, but my vibe is that it really it actually does make a difference. Uh, the the sort of deeper problem uh, is that. Does it make enough of a difference? You know, mm. does someone being more concerned about about climate change make them change their vote, or change their their decisions, or take action to do a particular thing? And the answer, of course, is that not on its own, but it opens up the the window to action. Uh, it opens up the the capacity for change, and you and you know, activists and um, scholars and writers and leaders and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, um, then kind of just need to come in and take that step and say, okay, look, you know, I know that you're scared, but actually, you know what, this is a problem caused by people. Um, and then we can prevent people causing it in the future by doing these particular things. So, uh, yeah, I would, I would build on what she says, um, by sort of adding, and she actually, I know I said this before, but she, she actually closes off that, that podcast with some beautiful comments, um, that yes. I've been meaning to share, um, outlining that step that I've just described. So, um, uh, it's really, uh, this is actually, I've been so delighted the past, um, week with, with how much, uh, great work that has been coming out from climate writers and, um, you know, activists and things like that around the world, um, focusing on that, on that element of it, which is basically, um, uh, if you're worried or scared or you're feeling a bit helpless or defeated, uh, you know, talk to the people who have actually been um, making change because uh, it's we actually know for a fact that we can change this. Uh, we have avoided many, many emissions in the past. That 2,400 number would be much, much higher uh, had we not started acting, you know, two decades ago. So um, uh, we've already avoided some stuff, uh, but we need to be avoiding far more. And the final thing, because I said there were two things, this IPCC report feeds into the UN Climate Change Conference of the Parties, COP26, in Glasgow at the end of October, 31st of October to the 12th of November. Katan, how optimistic do you feel about this uh, <laughs> with with specific reference to Australia, obviously? Mm. COP, will, COP will just be cop you know it's a sort of like uh there'll be some disappointments uh some some countries will will 
be crappy about it. Australia will certainly be crappy about it. Mm. Uh, but other countries will too, you know, like Brazil and, um, you know, potentially India, um, Saudi Arabia, like they'll, they'll all play their usual roles. Um, but I actually think that it will provide a really significant notch upwards. The net, the net impact of it will be um, to accelerate this change in a, in a, in a positive direction. Uh, I think that there are a lot of people working really hard to make sure that the balance skews far toward, more towards the making things better side, and I and I hope that they'll be successful. I I really want to kind of hug you to with, <laughs> withdraw from you this optimism about it because I'm very much the half glass empty kind of person. Yeah, Ketan Joshi, <laughs> thank you so much for spending some time with me. No worries. Nice to be here and, um, uh, you know, uh, good luck with all the reading. <laughs> There's a lot of it. <laughs> Thanks, Katan. Yes, so much, uh, so much reading. Uh, Katan's book, it's called Windfall. Very easy to find. Very easy to read too. Uh, well, at least uh, uh, the the three or even four pages that I've read so far have been uh, very readable. Yeah, I'll get to it, promise. Uh, but the, the IPCC report itself, my God, you want some detail. Uh, I've linked to it, obviously. It's called Climate Change 2021, the Physical Science Basis. It is, as a PDF file, 250 something megabytes, 3,949 pages. I expect you all to have read it. Uh, by this time next week, there will be questions in the final exam. That is some good summaries out there, obviously. Just before I finish, um, as I was editing uh, this podcast and, and listening back to the conversation with Katan, it occurred to me that particularly in Australia's case, the constant uh, focus of the government on, on the daily news cycle could mean that there is this massive ground shift of, of people's uh, views and opinions, and yet they could totally miss it. The, you know, the, the polling every fortnight and there's what, there's Roy Morgan and there's News Poll and there's Essential and there's their own internal polling and whatever, encourages them to make decisions based on that cycle, on that, oh dear, we need to be doing something about bushfires, so if we have an announceable, that'll, that'll deal with that little blip or their concerns about bushfires will go away and we're winning and, and whatever. And... And yet, when it comes to uh, you know putting their their pencil in their hand and uh, numbering parties on a ballot paper in the, in, in the polling stations, ground shift you know a big change could happen, and they'll just miss it because they're they're too busy looking at the little ripples of up and down and what happened each day. Uh, I I get the feeling that you know it does it does feel to me. A bit different this time around. We've had the bushfires in Australia. We are seeing uh, all of those those other natural disasters around the world, and we're noticing increasingly that the government uh, seems to be incapable of long term planning. Uh, maybe I don't I don't know. Maybe that's just my little bit of hope 
for today, having listened to Ketan, and I'll be back to my usual pessimism next time. That's all the edict for now, of course, dear listener. I hope you've learned something this week as well. Please do all of the things that people who make podcasts tell you to do. Tell your friends. Go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip. Pour in a few dollars. And next week, Dr Liz Buchanan on the Antarctic. Until then, I'm still Gerian. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.